Okay. This week is a double combined Parsha, meaning we conclude every year the entire five books of Moses, all five Chumashim, which have worked out sometimes to more portions than weeks, especially when based on how the holidays fall out, if there's a holiday on the Sabbath, and we don't read the portion of the week, we read the portion for the holiday, and then we have fewer weeks. So to compensate and make sure every year we finish the entire five books, we sometimes combine certain portions. And one of those portions that are classically combined is the portion of Vayakel and the portion of Pikude. If you were doing this inside, you would see that, let's say on Sunday's portion, it will say where you would normally go to to read it, which is Shani. But then if you keep reading and you hit Shlishi, which is where you would normally stop, on Monday you see in parentheses the word Shani, which means when it's a combined portion, that's as far as you go. So if you follow those markings over the course of this week, dividing into seven portions, you will learn all the verses and Rashi's of both portions. And these two portions are generally combined because they're one concept flowing. So what we had here, just to give us some background, is we had the portions of Truman to Tava, which commanded on the structure and vessels of the tabernacle and the clothing of the priest. We had Kisisa, which sort of segued backwards to what happened before all of this, which was the sin of the golden calf. And now we're in Vayakon Pekude, which is the fulfillment of the directives of Truman Tetzava. In Vayakel it all happens, and in Pekude we have the summation totaling everything that was donated. So, the first And Moses assembled the entire assembly of the children of Israel and said to them, these are the things that God commanded to Judah. So Moses assembled, when did this happen? We were really confused because there does not have to be chronology in Torah if it's better otherwise. So we were very confused what's going on here. And Rashi said, this happened the day after Yom Kippur when he descended from the mountain for the fourth time. And this is when he gave over all these instructions, meaning the previous portion of Kisisa was the sin of the golden calf. That happened 40 days after the giving of the Torah. So the Jews received the Torah on the 6th of Sivan. Moses goes up and spends 40 nights and days with God. Moses comes down. The Jewish people had sinned because they miscounted the days. They didn't count the first day. They counted the first day, which they should not have because they didn't have a night with it. And the force of evil had done things to make the world seem dark and gloomy and like Moses was gone. They saw a coffin flying in the heaven. And they started doubting and feeling we need some other force and obviously don't rely on man. Look how transient even in Moses is. And the mixed multitude of converts that Moses took were sort of jumping on the victory bandwagon led the Jews to stray and 3,000 Jews did sin. And um, a, great, a great calamity that's affecting us till today. And most of the portion of Kisisa was the sin and then the mop-up of that sin Moses' pleadings, different ways the Jews were judged, God's acceptance of the Moses' prayers, and what happened afterwards, all the aftermath. And then, again, Moses really went back up to heaven for another 40 days to plead with God. He came down, and he went back for another 40 days to plead with God. But this last set of 40 days, like the first, God was already appeased. 
And on the last day, when Moses comes down after his third interlude in heaven for 40 days, it was Yom Kippur, and God said, I forgive them. I completely forgive them. And now build a home for me in this world to express my forgiveness, to express that I want a home on planet Earth, that I want to be with the Jewish people closer than ever before. So this is today, Parsha Sayakel. It is the day after Yom Kippur. Moses has come down. God has given now this command, all of the instructions on building the tabernacle, which were the portions of Truman Tatava. And now, Vayakel, Moses is giving this over to the Jewish people, and they're going to do it. The word Vayakel is causative because he is causing them to be gathered, not, of course, in a physical sense, but it's still causing them to be gathered because by speaking to them, he's causing them to be gathered. Now, what's the first thing you would think? You would think he starts talking about the tabernacle, but he actually speaks about something else for one verse, or two verses. For a period of six days, work may be done, but the seventh day shall be holy for you, a day of complete rest for God. Whoever does work on it shall be put to death. So we see that he's about to tell them all the laws of the building of the tabernacle, but he first starts by telling about the Sabbath. So Rashi explains that he first tells them the prohibition of working on the Sabbath before the commandment of the construction of the tabernacle to say that the work of the tabernacle does not override the Sabbath. Even though I'm telling you now all these very holy things you do for God to build him a home on planet Earth, but you can't do anything that's forbidden on the Sabbath. And actually, we learn what's forbidden on the Sabbath from all the work necessary for the temple. Because every, all of those works are forbidden to be done on the Sabbath. And now we have one other verse about the Sabbath. You shall not light fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So the question is, hello, there's 39 things forbidden. Why does Moses list specifically one? In other words, to say don't do any work, we understand. That's the general prohibition of all that's forbidden on the Sabbath. But he picks out one. Why does he pick out one? So it's a disagreement among the rabbis. Some, and Rashi gives both interpretations. Some rabbis say that this prohibition of kindling a fire on the Sabbath is listed to teach a negative commandment, meaning there's a general prohibition against work on the Sabbath, and we're not listing any of the specific works. But the work of kindling a fire was listed because it's different than everything else, and that's why it was listed. It was enumerated to show it's different. How is it different? All other works, all other prohibitions that God forbade on the Sabbath, if they're performed intentionally before witnesses and warning, there's a death penalty. If they are done intentionally, but there's no witnesses and warning, they're punished by kares, a type of spiritual death and an early death. So kindling a fire is enumerated to say it's different. It's not like all the others. It's viewed as a regular negative commandment, and it's transgressed. If transgressed, it's punished like a regular prohibition. Of being flogged, but not death. So that's some of our rabbis interpreted that way. Other rabbis say that it came out to divide, meaning there's a rule. We have 13 rules of how we understand the scriptures. And one of the 13 rules is anything that was included in a general statement but was removed from the general statement in order to teach something was not removed to teach only about itself but applies teaching to entire generality. Meaning, in our case, kindling a fire is in the general statement that work is prohibited on the Sabbath. Now it's being removed from the general rule and it's stated independently in our verse to teach 
but it's a distinct form of work and carries a distinct penalty, as we're saying. Its penalty is different than everything else. It's not death, it's lashes. So this rule is saying that this is teaching us a lesson about all the other things prohibited on the Sabbath. What lesson do we learn? That there's not one broad category called work, but each type of work should be viewed distinctly. So in other words, for example, how does this apply practically? What difference does it make? If someone does several types of work that are forbidden on the Sabbath, but they were unaware, for each separate violation, he brings a separate sin offering to atone for each thing he did, because each thing is viewed as separate and distinct. So because I'm listing here kindling, and I'm saying by that kindling is separate and distinct, that is not just teaching about kindling, it's teaching about every type of prohibition on the Sabbath. Every type of prohibition is separate and distinct and is viewed as such, which has many legal ramifications. And now, after our little segue into the Sabbath, to reinforce that the Sabbath is not overridden by building the tabernacle, we now speak about the tabernacle. Moses said to the entire assembly of the children of Israel, saying, this is the word that God commanded, saying, So Rashi says, God commanded this to me, saying, what's the function of the word here, saying, to give it over to you. As is normally the idea of this word, saying, we have this all the time in the scripture, and God spoke to Moses, saying, the saying here means to give over to someone else. And Moses is saying, the saying is, God told me to give it to you. Take from yourselves a portion for God, everyone who is generous of heart, and shall bring it as a gift for God, gold and silver and copper. So we're saying generous of heart because his heart makes him generous. That's what we're calling him generous of heart. And Rashi says, I already explained all the contributions to the tabernacle and its construction when they were originally given over in the portion of Truma and Tava. So that's why we're not going to explain everything here, though some things are explained. And of course, for each one, it's the question of, wait, why is Rashi telling us this when he already explained it before? But there are very few Rashis here, relatively speaking, because all of the long, complex Rashis we did in the portion of Truma. Uh, and turquoise wool, and purple wool, and scarlet wool, and linen, and goat's hairs, red dyed ram skins, tachash skins, shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and raising the smoke of the incense, shoham stones, and filling stones for the ephod and for the choshen. Every wise-hearted person among you shall come and make everything that God has commanded. The tabernacle spread, its tent spread, and its cover, its hooks, its beams, its bars, its pillar, and its sockets. So on this word, the tabernacle spread, which in Hebrew is mishkan, that could be confusing because in Hebrew, the whole tabernacle is called a mishkan. So Rashi explains that this spread is the lower panels which are visible within the mishkan, within the tabernacle. So when I look up my, raise up my eyes, what I see directly ahead of me that my eye can see is called the Mishka, meaning, if you remember from Truma, there were many layers covering the tabernacle, most of which were not visible to the people inside. So the lowest layer that was visible is what we're calling the tabernacle spread. And its cover. The cover is made of the hides of the rams and the Tehoshim. Remember, the Tehoshim was this multicolored animal that only existed at the time of the building of the tabernacle for this purpose the aron and its staves, poles, the lid, the parochas screen. The parochas screen, if you remember, was what divided, this was like a, a curtain, so to speak, that divided between the holy and the holies of holies. So the Hebrew here doesn't just say parochas, 
which was a term we used before in the portion of Truma, but says proches hamasach, the screen. The Rosh explains that the word masach is anything that protects. And normally, the reason why we need this Rashi is because normally masach is referring to something that's sort of like a roof. And here it's not a roof. It's something being hung vertically. So Rashi proves that masach means a screen or a covering, and it does not have to mean one that's a rooftop, a roof-like covering. Even something hanging vertically, if it's screening and protecting and keeping something out, is a masach, this type of protective screen. The shulchan, the table, and its poles, and all of its implements, the lechem him, the bread of the surfaces. So Rashi says, I already explained that we call it this, this bread of surfaces, because the way it was baked, it was baked in a, in a, in its baking implement formed in such a fashion that it was made like an open box like an open box with two walls missing. So its surfaces are standing vertically at each end, and that's why it has all of these visible surfaces. In other words, it's not flat. We only see one surface. Since its two ends are up, you actually see four surfaces. Next verse. And the menorah of illumination, and its implement, and its lamps, and the oil of illumination. The implements are the tongs and the scoops, the scrapers. Its lamps are the cups which the oil and the wicks were put. And the oil of illumination, meaning, our question is, we're listing here all the things you have to be very wise and skilled to craft. Since when is oil something that will be on this list? So Rashi is reminding us, which actually he explained earlier, that this oil had to be very specially crafted that is different from other oils because it was left to ripen on the tops of the olive trees and then it was crushed in such a fashion that it was milled without any residue, without any of the pieces of the olive getting into it. It was the first pure drop that comes out of the olive. So you need a tremendous skill to produce this oil, and that's why it's listed here. And the altar for incense, and its poles, and the anointing oil, and the incense spices, and the entrance screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. The entrance screen, Rashi explains, are the curtain that faces east, where it was completely open, there were no beams or spreads there, and that's why you needed this screen. The altar of the offering, the Ola offering, its copper lattice, its poles, its implements, the kior of the washing basin, which we learned about in the previous portion of Kisisa, and its pedestal. The curtains of the courtyard, its pillars, its sockets, and the screen of the gate of the courtyard. So in the Hebrew here, you have something unusual, which you can only appreciate in the Hebrew. It says, Amudav and Adoneha, which means, literally, his pillars and her sockets. Now, when a word is conjugated in Hebrew, it will be conjugated based on the word it's conjugating to, which the word here is the courtyard. So Rashi explains that courtyard, chutzer, is one of those unusual words that we have in biblical Hebrew that actually can be conjugated in the masculine and the feminine. And there are a number of other words like that, which can both be in the masculine and the feminine, and that's why we have his pillars and her sockets, both referring to the same thing, the courtyard. So the courtyard could be in the masculine, his pillars, or the courtyard could be in the feminine, her sockets. In other words, there are no neuter pronouns in Hebrew. It has to be masculine or feminine, but sometimes it's both. 